Let's pray. I just want you to take a moment as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. We're speaking about the Holy Spirit, and so I just want to invite the Spirit into this room. The Holy Spirit is not some abstract idea. It is a reality the Bible teaches us. He, the very presence of God, the very power of God, and he lives in us, but the problem is we are not accessing that part of our lives. And so in this quiet of this moment now, we just pray, Holy Spirit, come. Speak to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, for those here this morning that are, 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 are downtrodden, are, are beaten up by this world, I pray, God, that you would be their comfort right now. Lord, for those this morning perhaps are hearing your spirit for the first time and they're hearing God from you, I pray, God, that you just continue to speak to them. Spirit of the Most High God, the creative force of the universe, we invite you now to begin to work, to continue working in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start off a series, a new one, um, and the title is called Fire Within, and we're looking at this idea of the Holy Spirit. Now let's just recap what we talked about last week. So for those of you who were not uh, with us last week, kind of uh, ca uh, be caught up. So last week we looked at this passage of scripture and I said that this passage from John chapter 3 verse to 5 to 6 is going to be kind of our, our, our guide for the series. And by the way, if you have an update, I would really recommend um, taking it out and using the back page for notes. I had a lot of people emailing me for my notes and I'm like, what did you say here? What did you say there? Take notes and then our conversation will go a little quicker because that'll be my email back to you. Did you take notes? No. Well then too bad. I'm not going to tell you. Um, no. Well, maybe. Um, okay, so John chapter 3, verse 5 to 6, um, Jesus is having a conversation with, with a, a teacher of the law. This guy knows the Bible, but he does not understand the Bible. And that can be our problem. Many of us know the Bible, but we actually don't understand the Bible. And so Jesus says this. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. See, one of the things I'm hoping that you're trying to get from this series, and maybe your time here at UCC, you are created to be supernatural beings. You are not flesh uh, and blood walking around this planet. Instead, you are flesh and blood that contain the very power of God in you. And if you are, are a Christ follower, that is something that Jesus himself promised. And what we need to make sure we understand, what we need to make sure that we are, 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 are kind of getting a context of this, is that Jesus himself says that an encounter with me is not enough, that you need the Spirit. And that's kind of what we talked about last week. We looked at this passage of Scripture from Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is, is having a conversation with some believers that he met. And he says this, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took a road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And of course, their answer is, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I said to you last week, and I want to remind you this week, and this statement may seem kind of controversial. This statement may push you in your comfort zones, but I firmly believe, and I see this in Scripture, that there are Christians who have encountered Jesus, but not the Holy Spirit. 
We also looked at Acts chapter 8, where Peter and John also have encountered believers, and they pray for these believers, and they say they, they want to pray for them. They would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what I, what I mean by this is this, that I believe that people have encountered Jesus. And we looked at the Ephesians passage where the Bible says that Jesus takes his spirit, the Holy Spirit, and places us in us as a deposit. But as I said to you last week, a deposit is not the full amount. If you ever bought a house or a car, you place a deposit on it, but the reality is the bank owns 95% or 90% of that thing. Why? Because the deposit is only the beginning. The installments as you go through and you pay it off, whether it's 25 years or 5 years, whatever it is for the payment plan, that is when you fully own it. When God places his spirit in us, it is a deposit, but that deposit is not the complete amount. And that complete amount, God wants to continue to deposit in us until the day that we finally face him. And that's when our, our, our faith shall be sight. So I said that last week, and I want you to know this. Now, please hear me clearly. I believe that there are churches full of people who have encountered Jesus, but not the Holy Spirit. That, that this is why I'm starting to see this, this idea of, of churches um, that are ineffectual, even though they may be filled to overflowing, they are ineffectual for the gospel. That's why people do not share their faith. That's why people do not see the power of God manifest. I use the, in, in the illustration that if you think of it this way, God is the engineer, and, and, and God creates this car, and his car's name is Jesus, and God says, this car is yours for free, and you're like, this is mine for free, and like, God's like, absolutely. So you get in the car, and he hands you the keys, and you're like, I've accepted Jesus, I, this is great. And you pop the keys to the ignition, you turn it, and nothing. And God goes, oh, I forgot to mention, the fuel for this car is the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need in our lives. The fuel of our spiritual development is the Holy Spirit. We are living in the realm of the Spirit. Not the God the Father, not God the Son, but God the Spirit. Jesus says to the disciples, it is good that I'm going away. And we're going to look at this more next week. But it's good that I'm going away. Because when I go away, the Spirit will come. And it's like, okay, I get that, Lord Jesus. We look at this passage from Titus, and I said to you that this is really what our spiritual journey is meant to be. And the first two parts there is, is what we have, right? So the, the first part, at one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That was our past. Until we encountered Jesus, that was our past. We lived in our sin until we encountered Jesus. But look at the next part. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And that's the next part. That's when we encounter Jesus. And, and, and remember, we talked about repentance, this idea of repenting for our past. And repenting is important, right? Uh, the, the Greek word for repentance was metaneo, the change in direction, right? So we, we come to Jesus and we repent. But this next part, the third part, is the part that most Christians, most Christ followers don't get to. Because look what he says. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The first two parts we get, yes, we understand our past. We understand that there's a part of us that's broken and we need our Savior. And we struggle with that daily. It's not as if it's all of a sudden wiped away and we don't have any struggles anymore. No, reality is, is we still struggle with our sin. 
The second part is we meet Jesus and we realize that we need a savior. It's like, okay, I get that. But we stop there. And the problem is we stop there and we never, we never grow. We never progress. We never, we never develop what God wants to have in us. You know, um, Christine's testimony this morning, and again, just so you know, we don't coordinate the testimonies and all that, but that's exactly what I'm talking about is Christine, you know, she encountered Jesus at 23, but God continually worked in her life until the point of time where the Spirit was speaking to her saying, this is what I want from you. And that's our story, but that should be our story. But so often I'm speaking to Christ followers who have not progressed in their faith from the day they commit themselves to the Lord. I, I say to people, what, what is God doing in your life now? And, and I say that to them, and they're like, what do you mean what God, what's God doing in my life right now? I gave my heart to the Lord when I was at camp or at a retreat when I was younger or whenever it was. I, 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 I did that, but that's it. That's all there is. No, actually, that's not all there is. The Holy Spirit wants to do something in your life. So that's kind of what we were at looking at last week. And um, this week, we want, to kind of, we want to continue looking at, at this understanding of the Holy Spirit. But before we kind of jump into where I want to go into this, I want to talk about this conversation that's really permeated our culture, this idea of religion versus relationship, right? These are words you see uh, talked about in our culture. Oh, God's not into religion. He's into relationship. No, God's religion is still important. And, and it goes back and forth. Now, the problem with this conversation is we're using the wrong language. So first thing you need to understand, religion should be defined as human-made additions to the law of God. I was talking to this young guy a couple of weeks back, and he's telling me about, um, you know, oh, uh, I, I don't bother reading the Old Testament anymore because, you know, that, that part of it's, uh, you know, it's obsolete. It's not, it's not relevant to my life anymore. And I'm like, whoa, 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 slow your road there, Tex. Um, you've, uh, you've, you've overlooked the Old Testament. His name was actually Tex. Um, it wasn't. Um, I have to say that to be honest, right? So uh, he said, I, I don't need the Old Testament anymore because it's obsolete. We don't need, we, Jesus has come. We don't need the Old Testament. I'm like, whoa, yeah, you do actually. And there's a reason why you do. Oh, oh, we don't need anymore because God's into relationship, not religion. And I'm like, I just realized at that moment in time that what, what he's been told, he's, uh, he's rejected the law without realizing it, that we called it religion. And I'm like, well, what, what you've done there is you've, 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 you've taken the law of God and you said, oh, the law of God is no longer applicable to me. And because of that, God's cool with my behavior. God's cool with my sin. He's okay with that. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my friend. And because of that, I don't need to worry about this Old Testament. Because frankly, the Old Testament freaks me out a little bit. Lots of weird names, lots of weird people, a lot of killing. That God seems angry. I don't really know if I like that God. But, you know, I focus on Jesus. I'm like, just so you know, <laughs> that God and Jesus and the Spirit they are consistent. There is, no, there is no inconsistency in them. So your inability to understand the Old Testament is really why you can't really understand what Jesus is meant to do and what the Spirit wants to do. So what we need to do is we need to define the law this way. The law is God's instructions concerning the moral, social, and spiritual behavior of his people found in the first five books of the Bible. The law is a very reflection of the nature of God because God speaks out of the abundance of what is in him. The law is a reflection of who and what God is. And so if you say God's not under religion anymore, and you say is, um, that religion is, is the law, well, I don't need that anymore. What you've done is you've said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discount 
you know, one-third of the Trinity. I'm going to discount one-third of the revelation of who God is. And that is actually unbiblical, and it's actually, um, I would push even so far, that's sinful. Because what you were doing then is you were untethering yourself from the foundation that God develops. Now, what does that mean then? Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what, is, what, what sin was had it not been for law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. See, Paul himself says, listen, the law is important. The reason the law is important, it helps us as a guidepost of what is right and what is wrong. And if you take the law out, suddenly spirituality becomes subjective. I'm comfortable with this and uncomfortable with that. Therefore, God must be comfortable with this and uncomfortable with that. And what you've really done is you've made yourself God. And you've, you've, uh, you've ejected God's revelation. Now, before I go on, what you can say to me, well, if that is true then, why have we not brought animals to sacrifice this morning? If the law is correct, then why are we not killing animals? And I would say to you, what you don't understand is the Bible interprets itself. And the law was modified by Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the final sacrifice. So the reason you didn't bring an, a, a cute, cuddly little animal uh, sacrifice this morning is because you understand intrinsically that Jesus said, I am the final sacrifice. And that's also why you don't have any, 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 um, any, any sacrificial laws applied to food. You can eat whatever you want you know, gluten, you know, notwithstanding, but you can eat whatever you want. Why? Because Peter's vision of the sheet of the animals, where Peter sees this vision of these animals, and God says to Peter, Peter, eat. And Peter says, oh, you're not going to trip me up this time, God. I, I messed up pretty badly when Jesus was around. I'm not going to eat of that. I'm a good Hebrew. I'm not going to eat of that because they're all unclean animals. And what's God's response? Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. God took the ceremonial laws applying to food, and he removed them. The Bible interprets itself. So what you have to ask yourself is when we talk about the law, what has God modified, but what has he not modified? And what you will find is he has not modified a lot more than you think. We make Jesus so cute and cuddly that we think God's okay with our sin and our brokenness. He is not. And it's not to say that I'm going to place condemnation on you. It is to say that we need to use God's law as a guidepost, as a lighthouse, so we understand what is true and what is right. That's God's word. Now, we come along and we say this idea. Now, here's the thing, right? These two words have been in a tug of war. Back and forth, back and forth, you know. In the 1950s, it's like, oh, it's all about religion. It's about liturgy. It's about this. I mean, we go the other direction. No, it's about religion. No, it's about relationship. And, and so now we go this way, right? And we go back and forth, back and forth. Let me tell you something really quick here. These two words are not even biblical. So let's get rid of these words and stop using them because these are words that grade five kids would use, okay? And because none of you are in grade five, Maybe some of you already look kind of young. I don't know. Anyways, let's instead, let's use biblical words that the Bible uses. And the Bible uses these words. Uh, the words that the Bible uses is law and grace. This is the tension that Paul wrestles with. This is the tension of the early church. The Bible says that law and grace are what the Bible uses, not religion and relationship. 
Not these words, when, when, when the Bible talks about this conversation, it does not use those two words. So stop using those two words. Don't say to me that God's into relationship, not religion. Because I'll say to you chapter and verse. And then don't say to me that God's into religion, not relationship. They can also say chapter and verse. But instead, when we use the words law and grace, we are, we, are, we are wrapping our minds around a biblical concept that God gave for us. And because of that, we can start having a biblical conversation. And please understand, UCC, we are, we are so excited about God's word, the Bible. We believe that is our touchstone of what is true and what is right. It's not about what the culture thinks is true, not what I think is true. Please understand, whatever I say, take back the scripture. And if I am incorrect, you, you rebuke me in the scripture. I am okay with that. Why? Because we believe the Bible to be true, and the rest of us are just trying to figure it out. So the reason I'm so kind of taking moments to, to talk about this is I want you to understand that UCC, we believe the Bible to be true. And we believe as well that the Bible will offend people. There is something offensive when you say to somebody, the only way to get to heaven is by Jesus. That's offensive. Because then you have friends who are other faiths or maybe have no faith at all. And what you are saying to them, you are wrong. And that's offensive. And as Canadians, we, we want to apologize every chance we get. Well, I'm so sorry. I'm terribly sorry. I, I, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, well, well, maybe the Bible doesn't say that. Maybe what the Bible says is that, well, we'll all figure it out in the end. Or, you know, it's, it's fine that you come to church at Christmas and Easter. That's fine. God's okay with that. He still loves you. You know, it's okay that you haven't moved any steps forward since you gave your heart to the Lord. That's fine. It's okay. God's okay with that. That's not true, actually. He's not okay with that. He's never been okay with that. Now, let me show you something here. When we talk about religion, we talk about relationship, we're talking about Jesus and, and God the Father. We're talking about Old Testament versus the Gospels. But what we have not brought into the conversation is the application of the Holy Spirit. Now, look what the Spirit does, okay? What, the, what happens with the Spirit is sometimes in your life you need more law. And, and what that means is, is the Spirit, John tells us, uh, it, Jesus tells us this in John. Getting a little excited, excuse me. Um, when he, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And again, we're going to talk about this more next week, the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But what the important part is, is the Spirit comes along and he takes law and grace, right? He takes law, the, the revelation of God the Father. He takes grace, the final payment of Jesus. And he says, sometimes you need more than the other. Sometimes in your life, you're going a wrong direction. You've made wrong choices in relationships, in habits, things you're doing. And the Spirit comes along and applies the law. And it reminds you that God has called you to a higher truth, to a higher reality. So the Spirit comes along and applies the law. And that's that sense of conviction you feel. It's that, it's that, it's that feeling you get inside like, this isn't right. You, you ignore it, you push it back, but the Spirit's still there. And He's giving us the law. Other times, the Spirit will come along and will give us grace. In our brokenness, as, he, as the Spirit applies the law, we feel that conviction. But then the Spirit comes along and gets grace and, talks, and, and, and draws us back to Jesus and his sacrifice. And law and the grace is the one-two punch of development, of spiritual development. And if you, if you take one out, it's, it's imbalance. Law is important for us. Why? Because we need to know what is right and wrong. But grace is important for us as well. Because we know it's right and wrong. We know that we are doing wrong. But Jesus comes along and applies the grace to his final sacrifice. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8-9. Right? So 
The Spirit is the conversation that we need to have. The Holy Spirit comes along and, and, and gives us law because we need to know what is right and wrong. But other times the Spirit gives us grace. Why? Because he wants to pick us up when we've fallen, when we've made wrong decisions and saying, okay, let's do this again. So religion and relationship, stupid. Okay? That's a very theological term, just to be clear. All right? Wrong way of looking at it. Instead, look at law and grace, but don't take the Holy Spirit out of it. Because when you put the Holy Spirit back into it, you realize the Spirit applies law and applies grace. And both of those and his application of our lives. Why? Because he's God. He knows us. He knows us intimately. He knows what we need in our time. And that's what's important about that. So what we want to do this morning as we continue on the series, we want to look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Because I want you to know something. The Spirit is consistent in the Old Testament and in the life of Jesus and in the early church and today. What he did back then, he's still doing today, which is a beautiful consistency of the Bible. What may surprise many people is how large a role the Spirit had in the Old Testament. Now, I confess to you, I have notes here, but you need to understand something. This is a very truncated, a very abbreviated look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I literally need to spend like about six months walking through this because this is so vast. When you look at how the Spirit worked in people's lives, the theology behind it is incredible. But obviously, we're not going to do that six months. But just so you know, I will come back to this topic at some, another point in time. Um, there's going to be in, in, in our teaching here at UCC, we are going to come back to the Holy Spirit once a year. We need to be reminded once a year about that. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to head to another church in that time. Have at it, right? But we want to make sure that we are, we are being a church that is really spirit-led. Please hear me. We want to be a church that is being led by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's what Jesus promised us. That was his promise to us. And that was what he led. Spoiler alert for next week. Everything that Jesus did in his ministry was not by Jesus' divinity, but by the Holy Spirit. He did not do what he did with his godhood, but instead he did it as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I'll, we'll walk that through next week. you got to come back. Okay. Let's take a look at the Holy Spirit here in the Old Testament. So, and we talk about the function of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The first thing you need to understand about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit was a part of creation. And when I talk about creation, I mean natural and supernatural. There's two parts to the creation accounts, and, and not only just a creation account, but throughout scriptures that the Spirit seemed to be central towards. Now, obviously, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, you, you know this passage, right? Now, the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. Isn't that interesting that the first part of the Trinity that we meet is the Spirit of God? And at the very beginning of creation, at the very beginning of time, there is the Spirit. He is the creative force of the universe. He is there at the very beginning. But now we also see, too, in other parts of Scripture, that not only is He the creative force, the catalyst, the beginning, the spark, He's also sustainer. Look what Job says in Job chapter 33, verse 4. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of Almighty gives me life. One of the um, images the Bible gives us of the Holy Spirit is of wind, of breath. I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a second. And again, Psalm 104, 30. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. When God wants something created, when he wants something to take place, the Holy Spirit is what he sends, who 
he sends. But not only does the Spirit of God take place in the natural, the Spirit of God is creative in the supernatural. Let me show you something here. The first account we have of a person being filled with the Spirit in the Bible is actually in Exodus chapter 31, verses 3 to 4. And it's for the arts. Look at this. Now, remember, God has brought the people out of, out of Egypt. He's, he wants his, his temple to be built. And so, it's, the Bible says this. See, I have chosen Be, um, Bezael, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs. The first person filled with the Spirit in the Bible is a person that God wanted to use in the arts. Why do you think there is such a battle in the arts between faith and between uh, and manipulation? Because God knows that we are moved by, by art, by, by music, by images, by all these other things. We are moved in the arts. But the Bible also says clearly that God claims the arts. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's there. If you are an artist, you're creative in any way, you do not realize that you have a leg up on everybody else. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. The creative force of the universe lives in you. And he, the Spirit delights in that. We also see as well, too, in First Chronicles 28, 12, when David is handing over the plans for the temple. Look what the Bible says. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms for the treasuries of the temple of God and for the treasuries of the for the dedicated things. When David was trying to create the temple, this place that was going to be the house uh, of God's presence for the people, the visible representation of God's people, God gives David his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's like, okay, David, get the blueprints out. I got a design like you wouldn't. Right? And so the Holy Spirit in the supernatural is using his creative force to help David create something. So within the Holy Spirit, there's this idea of natural supernatural. But let me show you something here as well. In Genesis chapter 2 to 7, I've spoken on this before, but I want to show you something here. I just made a discovery, and I was, I was as, as, as giddy as a kid in the candy store uh, when, I, when I discovered this. You need to understand, when I was in seminary, I took Greek. So Hebrew is not my language of study. Therefore, when I, when I study Hebrew, I, 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 I got to go through it way slower because it takes me longer, the syntax and all that. It's, it's, it's out there. So when I made this discovery in the Hebrew, I was like, wow, this is really incredible. So you know this, right? Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the breath of life is this, this Hebrew word called ruha. Okay? Now, of course, I just spit on the first three rows here, right? But ruha is the breath of God, but the breath of God is identified as the spirit of God, right? And when the spirit of God went into this, this being of flesh, they, that being became a living being. Now, I want you to show you something here. I always assumed that the breath of God was the spirit of God placed in us, and that is correct. But what I didn't realize is ruha in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebraic word, actually has a deeper meaning. Let me show you something here. The Hebrew word ruha literally means the wind and is derived from the parent root rock, which means a, a prescribed path. So, what the Bible shows us here is the child roots derived from his parent. In other words, ruach is the parent, uh, and, and, and there's different derivatives of it. Erach, uh, um, racha, and yarach. Erach is a traveler who follows a prescribed path from one place to another. Now, look what he's saying here. 
that when God placed his wind, his breath in us, the spirit of God, not only did that we become a living being, but it also told us how we should live. So the spirit of God is actually the image of God in us. And when we talk about what is right and what is wrong and how we should live, that is the ruha of God. That is the, the path that God has placed in us. So why do you think that when we have the spirit in us that we know better how to make decisions? It's because that's his responsibility. That's what, he, that's what pleases him. So not only does the spirit of God, is the breath of God, but it's also a prescribed path that we should go on. Not only did God give us his breath to make us living, to make us different from animals, but that breath in us is also helping us to understand how we should live and how we should move. There also another function of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was God's presence. Now, let me show you this, this great conversation that um, <clears throat> Moses has with God. And again, Moses has, he, he, he is brave before God. Look what it says. Then Moses says, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people of the earth. So God saying to Moses, Moses, <clears throat> I got the promised land ready for you. You go. But Moses is smart. Moses is like, yeah, we'll go, but you better come. Now, look what Moses is saying, okay? God is just saying to Moses, Moses, I've got the promised land for you. I've got the prize. And what do most people do? They run for the prize. Moses stops because he's wise. He's smart. And he says, by the way, we're not going to go for the prize. We're not going to go for the treasure. We're not going to go for the promise unless your presence accompanies us. Because when we get to the promised land, what's going to separate us there from every other people we encounter? In other language... Not our customs, not our looks. Your presence. God, your presence is what's going to separate us from every other person that we meet. And your presence is what's going to give us victory and help us to accomplish what needs to be done. So, Lord, do not send us from this place. If you're staying here, we're staying here. It's a desert. It's hot. And it stinks. But I would rather be in a place that's hot and stinky with your presence than go to the promised land Without your presence. So God's presence in the Old Testament was signified by the Holy Spirit. And it was, it was not something that people went lightly with. Now look at this. In Psalm 51. This is David. This is David's psalm of repentance. Remember, he's, made, he's, he, he's, he's done that sin of Bathsheba and killing somebody. Right? So Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. But look what he says. Do not cast me from your presence or... Take your Holy Spirit from me. David knows something that he has screwed up in such a spectacular way. And that everybody knows it. The prophet Nathan knows it. Everyone knows it. But what, what, what worries him the most is not what people know what he did. Is that God may take his Holy Spirit from him. And then what would that make him? That would just make him a king. <laughs> that would just make him a king. The most powerful human being on the planet. That's all it would make him. But David knows that we need to understand that God's Holy Spirit, his presence, is more important than being a king. So in David's lament, in David's apology, he says to God, God, please 
don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Even though I am broken, even though I, I manipulated an event and I took advantage of a woman and I, and I killed her husband, God, have mercy on me and that you would not take your presence from me. In the book of uh, Haggai, look what it says there. But now be, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God is encouraging the people. He's asking to do some incredible things. But he says, don't worry. Don't worry. The Spirit goes with you. Why don't we think like that? Why do we not think about God's Spirit? Why do we uh, attack our schooling, our careers, our relationships, thinking the Spirit of God doesn't go with us? Can we not have some Christ followers stand up and say, Lord, I don't know what decision to make. I don't know where to go. But as long as your Spirit's with me, as long as your presence remains with me, wherever I go, you're with me. Wherever path that I choose, whatever Iraq whatever ruha you will take me, you go with me. And I want you to know something, that whatever, when the Spirit gets a hold of your life, I mean really gets a hold of it in an active sense, you start doing dumb things. Dumb to the world, smart to God. You start saying no to commitments that take away from God. You start saying no to things that only boost up your ego, and you start rejecting that. The Spirit of the Lord will take you to places, and he will empower you in those places, but there will be pain and suffering, and there will be the less of the world, but it will be glory to what God wants. How dare we as Christ followers think to ourselves that God's blessings are upon us when we have bigger this, better that, more of this. Instead, what we should be saying is, God, wherever I go, whatever I do, just make sure your presence goes with me. Because if your presence goes with me, then I have all that I need. Almost done here. The Spirit of God in the Old Testament also helped people accomplish God's work. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 17, look what it says. I will come down and speak with you there. I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Moses, God's talking to Moses, and Moses is tired. He's tired of being a pastor of, of this church called the Israelites. He's like, Lord, I can't do it on my own. And God says, choose 70 leaders. And I'm going to take a portion of my spirit. I'm going to place it on them. Why? Because you've got work to do. And only my spirit is going to help you in that work. Uh, we also see this as well, too, in uh, Deut Deuteronomy 34.9. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. The spirit of God was there in his leadership there. This, uh, in Judges chapter 3, verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave um, <laughs> Kushtan... Rishatham, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who empowered him. Again, briefly looking at it, when God wanted people to accomplish things, he gave them the spirit. Same as today. Let me recap. When we talk about the spirit of God, we say that the spirit of God was there in creation, natural and supernatural, that the spirit of God was a sign of God's presence, God's favor. And of course, finally, that the spirit of God was there accomplishing God's work. But that's not it, though. In the Old Testament, there's a future promise. I want to show you two uh, passages of Scripture that talk about God's plan for the Spirit in the future is. In Zechariah verse 12, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for only a child and grieve 
bitterly for him as one grieved for a firstborn son. This is a prophetic statement towards the Messiah. But what you see here is that the Bible says that God gives us his spirit to make sure that we understand what we've done and to embrace Jesus. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and careful to keep my laws. Not only was the Spirit active in the Old Testament, and so much more than I've shared with you this morning, but there's a future promise. And the future promise says that God will pour out His Spirit. And I love the Ezekiel passage. God will take our unfeeling, uncaring heart and remove it and give us a heart of flesh. And the heart of flesh is the heart that the Spirit dwells in. That God will take His Spirit on us and place it in us in the most intimate way possible. This morning, I want you to know something that you might have been a Christ follower for X amount of years. Maybe it's weeks. I don't know what, what, what your spiritual journey is. But I want you to know something. That encountering Jesus is not enough. That you need Jesus' spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to continue your development and your growth. And if you have stalled in your spiritual life, my question, my, my guess is, is that you have somehow blocked out the spirit. Because you know why we blocked out the spirit? The spirit is so safe. He does things in us that it's uncomfortable. He moves us in places that just freak us right out. But that's life in the Spirit. He does not send us out and say, okay, I hope you survive. Hope things go well. He sends us out and says, let's, let's go. Let's do this together. Let's walk together in the life of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to take Christ followers and empower them and make them something more. And why are we Holding that back. Why are we rejecting that? Part of me wonders is because it seems too far out. It seems too dangerous. But that's exactly what God intended. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we have been talking about you. We've been reading about you. We have been learning about you. And what we learn is that there's so much more to learn. That you have such an amazing path for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would fill each and every person in this room to overflowing. Lord, I pray that this fire that you've placed within us would rise up and would consume the sin and, and the distractions and all the things in our lives that, that take us away from you, Lord Jesus. And I pray the Spirit would rise up within us even now. Holy Spirit, please be released in our lives. Lord, if we are making wrong decisions and wrong relationships or are going down a path that takes us away from you, God, I pray that you'd use the Spirit to correct us, to move us back to what we need. Lord, we need more of you, and more of you is more of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would not shy away from that, we would not run away from that, and instead we'd hold up our hands openly and say, Spirit, fail me once again, that I may serve you, that I may know you, that I may feel that intimacy of your presence. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming this morning. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for coming. If you have any questions, you can talk to somebody with a name tag. If you want prayer or you want to talk to me about anything I've said, I will stay up here. And a couple of the leaders will be up here to pray with you as well, too. Thanks so much for coming and have a very blessed Sunday.